Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hello, it's Ayers on the Road. We're excited to be with you today and to be talking about families and about marriages and about parenting and about grandparenting and about just all the best things in life, Linda. It is, absolutely. Um, We have been on the road this week. We've been down in Las Vegas at a tennis tournament. (laughs) This husband I'm married to is a tennis nut. (laughs) And we are running around to tennis tennis courts all over the country. He's now gone into national tennis. Well, let's not get into that. But the funny thing is, Linda, that our resolution is to cut back on travel because we've been gone so much. What was our record? What was the time we slept the least in our own bed? You had that figured out at one point. No, well, I don't know. I know that one time we had five different beds in one week that we were sleeping. Well, in. I think there was one year when we only slept in our own bed 56 times or something like that. And the travel was mostly related to books and speaking and going around and trying to do uh, parenting meetings for organizations and so on. And we love that. But I think the season of that occurrence is drawing to a close. So my point is we're trying to cut back on travel. But what we're finding is other sorts of travel sort of fill in. And we're trying to see our kids or we're trying to do these tennis tournaments or we're still trying to work on the road and do some speaking. And we're not doing too well on our resolution yet. We've got to cut it down. Maybe if we change the name of the show to Ayers at Home instead of Ayers on the Road, maybe maybe that would influence us. What do you I'm think? not I'm not ready for that. You're getting old if you want to stay home all the time. <laughs> I'm ready to be out there on the road. I love it. And uh, I know some I have a lot of friends who just hate it. They just want to be home on a schedule and I'm I'm just the exact opposite. But anyway, well, you know, one thing we, we've been thinking, we just like to talk off the cuff and share our thoughts with, with radio listeners. And um, I think we've been really influenced by a class that we teach occasionally where we alternate. One, one class will be on parenting and the next one will be on marriage. The next one will be on parenting. next one will be on marriage. We rotate back and forth. And we've been realizing that we've focused primarily on ours on the road, on parenting, and on families at large from the perspective of a parent or a grandparent. But I think we need to start working more on the marriage part of it. And that's what we're going to do today. Because when you think about it, you you all know this old saying, the best thing you can do for your children is to love their mother. Or if you're a woman, the best thing you can do for your children is to love their father. And the two, marriage and parenting, are so interrelated and so powerfully connected. And we kind of think that, uh, you know, a lot of people in our culture work harder on parenting than they do on marriaging. In fact, we don't have a word marriaging, which may be indicative of the fact that we don't, you know, work on it quite as much. And so what do you think? I mean, do you think, Linda, do you think if you're, does it necessarily follow that if you improve your marriage, it will also improve your parenting? Um, Of course. It will improve the children, too. It will improve the children's (laughs) attitude. That's exactly what children need is to see that their parents love each other. I'm just working on a, a book right now and 
talking about grandparents and the importance of showing your affection with your adult children for your spouse, with your adult children and your grandchildren, that they need to see that you really love each other. And um, maybe even sometimes we get grumpy when we get a little bit older. I've been a little grumpy the last couple of days. And uh, <laughs> I think that I it's, it. it's really important that um, it's really important that we continue showing if we do have a spouse. I mean, some of you don't have spouses and we know we're talking to a lot of people who've been through a divorce and so on. A lot of great single parents. A lot there. of great single parents and single people. And um, so, you know, it depends on your situation. But if you have a spouse and you're living in a household and you are still around your family, it really is so important. Well, and here's my point. Here's my point, Linda, that if you, uh, I, I, you know, we, we travel around, we see people who are working so hard on their parenting, but not as hard on their marriaging. And my observation, just react to this. I, I think becoming a better parent and working on parenting, being more deliberate, being more purposeful in your parenting is, is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't always translate into an improved marriage. Whereas the other way, I think it does work. If you're working on your marriage, that seems to always translate into you also becoming a better parent. So, so if that's true, then we would all be well advised to sort of work first on our marriage if we are married and then let it flow from there out to the parenting. It's almost like when you're on an airplane and the, uh, the, the, the flight attendant says, if the oxygen masks drop down, first use it on yourself, then on your kids. And, and I think that's maybe a metaphor here that, uh, you know, you, you don't want to ever work harder on parenting than on marriaging because they're interrelated and because the marriage improvement translates better to the parenting improvement than the other way around. Well, yeah, that was a mouthful. <laughs> um, but we do have to say that uh, we've been, you know, there's a book that's been out forever and probably most of listeners have heard of this. It's the five love languages. Gary Coleman, 1995. Chapman. Gary Chapman. It's been out so long I forgot his last name. Gary Chapman, 1995. So that's 22 years, the, the, the love languages. And almost everyone knows about that, right? Almost everyone has heard of the love languages. That I, I know the five, gift giving. I mean, the whole idea of that book, as you recall originally, was figure out what your spouse's love language is. It was a book about marriage. It was a book about love. And figure out if, if, if your spouse's love language is gift giving or quality time or words of affirmation, or acts of service, or physical touch. And I remember when I first read the book thinking, well, this is, this is a good book, but it's, it's overly simplified. Pretty I mean, simple, yeah. Everyone, everyone doesn't fit into one of those five categories for their love language. I mean, it must be more nuanced than that and more complicated, right? Yeah, but the farther we get down the road, the more we realize that they pretty much do fit in there. I mean, if you... Well, I don't know. My love language is, is foot rubs. Oh, I guess that's physical that touch. That just might be physical touch. <laughs> Honestly, it really is. And my love language is service. I mean, really, the whole time we were growing up uh, with the kids, we were growing up with the kids, um, Richard was 
saying, what you need is a poem every day. I need to write you a poem You need every words day. of affirmation. You and need to be told how much yes, I love you. And by exactly. the way, I still think that's what you need. I know you do, because that's what you need. No, no, it's because you've always no, had it. No, come on, so you, you got to admit it. You got to admit it. But what I, have, what I had to say to him is, honey, I love your poetry, but what I need is for you to do the dishes, clean up, see what needs to be done without being told, please. And, you know, we have kind of gotten that figured out. I, ha I do have to say, I have to give Richard a compliment because I've been <laughs> writing this book. I've had my head down for about three months now. Just I'm handing it in literally today. And um, it really has been such a nice thing because Richard has been living on his own. Not because <laughs> it's not nice because he's been living on his own, but he has really been taking care of himself, but he's also been taking care of me and he brings me food and he went and bought some soup last night because I could not, I couldn't find anything to couldn't eat. Find anything I, to plus eat I needed to feed you because you're in there trying to work on this book without any fuel. You can't work without nourishment. Like but that. that really means a lot to me. And you know, I do that all the time for you and it's fine. I mean, you like it and you're nice. Well, so it, that's but. my point is, is your <laughs> love language acts of service or is it words of affirmation or is it gift giving? I mean, what is it? See, it's a little, I mean, there's there's overlaps here, right? There's always some overlaps, but I know what my main one is, and I know what your main one is. Now, let's let's do this again just so that the listeners who may not know about it can think about it, whether you're in a car. Or and we're going to try to go beyond this today. We're going to try to get on a spiritual level. Um, so let's just, let's go through these. Um, gift getting. Do you love, I mean, when people send me gifts all the time, I think, oh, this person's love language is gifts. They love gifts. And, Boy, but it's supposed to, to be, they're supposed to be giving you what you need. They're, they're supposed to be thinking of your love language, not theirs. Of course, but it tells you something about the person when, you know, what they do for you all the time is something that means a lot to them as well, well don't you think? So, well, so that's an interesting point, and that may sort of, transition after the break into the spiritual takes on 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 this whole idea of love languages but you know as much as we love the golden rule right linda do unto others as you would have them do unto you that's the most common way the golden rule is stated but most of us have realized that that's not always appropriate because that assumes that other people want to have you do the same things to them as you want them to do to you. Yeah, yeah, you know. So a better statement of the golden rule is do unto others as your empathy and sensitivity tells you they would want you to do unto them, which is a different thing. Exactly. And I remember at one point we had some friends who were an older couple to us. They're young. They're, they'd be young to us now, but they were an older couple, and we really liked them, and uh, we visited them in their house once in a while. Somebody else introduced us to them. And uh, they had young children. We weren't even married at the time. But you were just, you know, a young guy. And you went in there and put your feet up on the coffee table and enjoyed yourself talking and so on. And then we found out later that that was not really appropriate. <laughs> because that is what you would want somebody to do at your house. You would want somebody to come into your house and relax. And, I mean, you know, not necessarily put your feet on the table. But, but you know, really enjoy 
you know, just let it, let it loose. Well, and, it actually is true. I got in a lot of trouble as a really young guy by following what I thought was the golden rule. Yeah. I mean, I would be really candid with people. I would sort of tell them exactly what I thought right at the beginning, because <laughs> that's what I wanted them to do to me. Yeah. And it was, it's, it's such an obvious lesson that people are not like you and that the, the golden rule really in its finest form says get to know someone else or know enough about them that you do unto them what they would want you to do unto them, not what you would want them to do unto you. So that's what's tricky it about is this, this whole love dilemma. Yeah. Thing. And I think you give me positive affirmations all the time. And that's just part of your, I mean, he just thinks of the funniest every day. He gives me a compliment. It just comes out of the woodwork. And you, and like, the, and you don't think you need that, you but if, it, that? if you suddenly didn't have it, you probably would realize how much that means to you. Yeah, but I'm thinking <laughs> I need to say things positive that are positive to you more often because that must mean a lot to you. So anyway, we can learn a lot by talking about these love languages with each other and uh, with ourselves. What what can I do to be more loving and, and uh, to really give my spouse what I need? So when, need. We, when we go to a break in a minute, think in your own mind, you know, if you had to pick your love language, what what tells you that someone really loves you? Gift giving, quality time, words of affirmation, acts of service, or physical touch. And maybe think of whether you've got a different love language than that. What really shows you that your spouse loves you in a, in a way that is deeply meaningful to you? And then what we want to do is to say, is it possible to go beyond these? These are emotional love languages, essentially, physical and emotional love languages. Are there also spiritual love languages? That's the question. That's what we want to get into. So stay with us, and we'll be right back on Ayers on the Road. And we're back. Today we're talking about five love languages. We're talking about the importance of knowing your spouse, your partner, your person that you love. And we have to mention there's also a new book called um, Five Love Languages for Children. And it's actually done with the same guy, uh, Gary Chapman. But it is also with a woman named, um, oh no, Ross Campbell. I said Rose. Ross Campbell. Another guy. Wow, they need a mother in there to figure out love language. But anyway, um, apparently it's a very good book. We have not seen it, but there are ways that we need to let our children know that we love them too. And I, I think it would be very insightful. I'm planning to read it. So I guess my question, Linda, is if, if you're a person who seriously wants to discover your partner's love language and in all of its nuance, in all of its complexity, so you can really love your partner the way they want to be loved, the way they deserve to be loved is the best approach to just uh, the best approach to just stay with these, with these five uh, sort of preset ones and keep asking yourself, what is the love language or, or can we go a little beyond that? And can we say, maybe there are others that tie into this. Maybe what my partner really needs most is really to be listened to. Maybe what my partner needs most is for me to ask the right questions 
that reveal to me what he or she is really thinking about. And I think the deeper and the longer you think about that, the two things happen. Number one, the more empathy you begin to develop, because that's really the key word, isn't it? I mean, empathy, it's, it's not like I need to make this, I, I need to understand this person by mirroring myself in them. And I really, ultimately, they're a lot like me, so I need to treat them the way I'd want to be treated. That, that's not it. It's how do I walk a mile in this person's moccasins? How do I see the world the way my partner sees it? How do I listen hard enough and ask the right questions long enough to know how he or she is really feeling? And, and, and understanding that that's not an easy thing to do because men and women are inherently different. And, and to try to put yourself more and more into the, the shoes and the mind and the heart and the spirit of that other person. And I think my point, Linda, is that when you really try to do that, when that becomes your conscious goal to understand the world from your partner's point of view, it begins to become more than an emotional love. It begins to become a spiritual love. It begins to become something where you're also praying about it because that's the real revealer, isn't it? That's to, to, to say in your prayers, Heavenly Father, help me to understand not only what my wife needs or what makes her happy or, or what turns her on or what fulfills her, but what what is it that that she needs most? Where is her, where's her heart? Where is her spirit? Please help me to understand how I can love her more, how I can love her better. Then I think it begins to become spiritual. And, and, and maybe one of the love languages to pray hard for your spouse. When's the last time in a prayer that along with all the things you normally do of saying, thank you and asking for blessings and so on. When's the last time you had a private prayer where your whole focus, the whole prayer was about your spouse? Bless her in these ways. Help her with these things that I know are worrying her. Reveal to me the things I can do to lift her burdens, to make her life better, to bring her more joy. Don't you think at that point it begins to become a spiritual love language? Well, it does, and it also, um, it's a matter of thinking, um, really thinking, and how often do we really think about the soul of the other person, you know, and what they need, and um, so on. Wow, you know, it's such an interesting process. It's hard to think, because life catches you up, and you um, are just so involved in so many things, it just doesn't work very well. I mean, you have to remember that it takes some thinking time to do something like that. And it's just hard work to get out of your own it's head work. and into into the head of the other person. And I really think the starting point on that is prayer. And I, I think there's two kinds of prayer that can really help out. One is the one I mentioned a minute ago where you're just on your own privately praying about your spouse, praying for your spouse. And the other kind is couple prayer, where you're praying together, and, and so many couples pray together every night. But sometimes, the, I think we're all guilty of this at times, the prayer becomes a little perfunctory. We say a lot of the same phrases that we say every night. Maybe one person says the prayer one night, the other one says the prayer the next night. We've found that one kind of prayer that, that really draws couples together 
and begins to engender this spiritual love language is where it's an open prayer and both of you are speaking to the Lord at once. Maybe one person starts the prayer and then squeezes the other one's hand when they're finished and the other one picks up on the prayer and it becomes like a dialogue, like we as a couple are going before the Lord and we're talking to God and we're asking him for things and we're understanding things. And what I find whenever we do that, honey, I don't mean to be too personal here, but I learn a lot about you from what I hear in your prayers. It's like, it's like a kind of communication. You're not really talking to me. You're talking to God, but I'm listening in and it's very intimate and I'm, I'm hearing things in a way in your conversation and your prayer that I that you might not be able to say to me one-to-one. It's a, it's a three-way communication that becomes very powerful, becomes a love language. You know, someone told us to do this when we first got married. I can't even remember who told us to do that. It was too long ago. But um, it really has been an interesting thing. We do do this, and it is so nice because when Richard's praying, he just used to often forget my mother, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> at least I have a chance. Oh, when we're at bef- least I have a chance to say This is before we were doing this, when I, when I was just saying the prayer. No, you I'm saying, saying that once yeah. we decided to do that, when you forgot her, I thought, okay, but I can add my part, and um, <laughs> and it's going to be my, my turn soon, so I can say what I want to. But it really has been a fun, a fun exercise, an interesting, a deep exercise in a lot of ways. So I guess one way to, to rephrase that is you might, number one, you might earnestly and deliberately try to think about your spouse from her point of view or from his point of view if you're the, the woman. And you might get somewhere with that. You might realize some new things that you've never thought of before just because you're working at it mentally. You know, Joseph Smith had this wonderful phrase where he said, uh, when, when a person works by faith, he works by mental effort rather than physical force. So you might learn a lot just by this mental effort of trying hard to get out of your own head and into your spouse's head. But then beyond that, if you were to take that question to God in prayer, how can I love my spouse better? How can I love my spouse more? What does she need? How does she see the world? How can I build her? How can I enhance her? There are many people who who say, and I, I kind of tend to agree with this, that you probably have more influence over your spouse's happiness than you do over your own. I mean, you know, you've heard all the phrases about you, you can't find happiness if you look for it. You only find happiness when you're giving it to someone else. Well, maybe the closest place to do that is you know, have your goal not be to be happy yourself, have your goal be to make your spouse happier. And then you're right into this mentality of empathy and spiritual understanding and trying to go beyond sort of trite, simplified love languages and and really know your spouse in order to love them more. You know, as long as we're talking about prayer, I think that it's also important that, um, for the listener to know that we don't always get along, we don't always do really well, and the last thing you want to do when you're having an argument is uh, to get down on your knees and pray and ask for forgiveness or whatever, 
And uh, I, but I do think that's a huge tool. It's a great love language to do that and to get the other person. So that not that you're on the same, but it does dissipate the argument. I totally agree, honey. And uh, that's the whole thing is being able to catch yourself and translate back into that empathetic feeling. And you know, one thing, it's sort of a structured thing, but but maybe that's what people are looking for. One way to really sort of force the issue in terms of empathizing with each other is to have a little couples meeting once a week on Sunday. And we started that in our marriage while we were in England, working with full-time missionaries all the time. And, and one of the things we were asking them to do is once a week have a feeling session. We actually called it there a testimony meeting where you're, you're, you're revealing your deepest thoughts and belief one-on-one to this companion that you're working with all the time. And we found that, that missionary teams who did that every week rarely had a serious companionship problem. And so we picked that up, Linda. We started doing that in our own marriage. Yeah, we did. And it was really interesting. I mean, it sounds weird to have a meeting with your spouse, but <laughs> but we like to do that on Sunday afternoons. We like to have what we call an executive session. I mean, this is a Harvard Business School or guy. Or a so Sunday session. He, um, he likes to use business terms, but during the executive session on Sunday, um, we, we do talk through the, uh, the week coming up and all that, so on. But we, we like to end with telling each other how we felt about that week. And I like to... Um, well, how we felt about that week and how we feel about each about other each and other. how we're feeling within our own selves. Right. And, and that's a perfect time for me to save up if you've done something that's kind of yeah. offensive that week <laughs> and uh, say, you know, I love you so much and you got to do the sandwich method and be sure you say how much you admire and love your spouse and so on, which you do. But then you have to say, but you really hurt my feelings this week. And um, it's just a really good time to talk through things when before they you know, get buried and then come back later in an uglier form. You really need to get those feelings out. Yeah, I remember out. that was the, the phrase that it was a Stephen Covey phrase that, that sort of motivated this regular sharing of feelings meeting once a week. And his statement was, um, unexpressed feelings never die. They just get buried and come forth later in uglier forms. And every marriage partner has experienced that kind of downward spiral. Yeah, well, I think that's just negative feelings. But they're also it's also important, as you said, to express the positive feelings. The feelings that you have about how you feel about your, uh, your relationship with God, and Jesus Christ, and so on, and we really have and found that spouse, a, a good and, time. and with yourself, and 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 the more honest you can be. I mean, think of this weekly meeting if you decide to try it, or this testimony meeting, this feeling sharing meeting. It's it's a way to get inside and and reveal to the other person what your needs are, and to respond to the other person's need in a way that begins to develop this spiritual love language where you say, I know what my wife needs, or I'm knowing more about what my wife needs, not only emotionally, I'm knowing what she needs spiritually. And so that's our challenge this week. Do some thinking about that. Think about the five love languages and how you can go deeper. Our time is up. We loved being with you today, and we'll see you next time on... Ayers on the Road. Bye-bye.